Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. They left from the back of the Ritz with Henri Paul the wheel, with Baron Dodi and Trevor East Jones, who were sitting next to him in the front seat. Henri Paul had his foot on the gas, and the pats were left behind. Welcome to episode six of Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. I'm an ex-homicide detective and I've come to Paris with a team including investigative journalists Dylan Howard and Aaron Tinney and French paparazzo Pierre to find out definitively what happened to the Princess of Wales 22 years ago and just who was responsible for her early but tragic death. She inherits the protection of Mohammed al-Fayed. It was a catalogue of errors, of the protection from the moment that she became involved with the fires. The first focus of an inquiry into a car crash should be the driver. When a crash results in the death of three people, including the most famous woman in the world and the mother of the future King of England, then we need to know exactly who that driver was, what security measures were in place, and whether more could have been done to prevent what happened. Here's Ken Wharf, Diana's former bodyguard, who left her service when she and Prince Charles divorced. I was a career police officer for all my career, but it was in 1986 when I was accepted for the Royal Protection Department based at Scotland Yard. All of us underwent a series of training modules over a 12-month period, and that was the ability to shoot, to be a firearms expert, to undergo paramedic training to be an advanced driver, and then there'll go a number of different courses that ultimately would lead you into being selected to work for a member of the British Royal Family. We were twinned with diplomatic protection or ministerial protection, and we were trained in the sort of same protocols with colleagues that would work for prime minister and senior ministers of state. However, when Diana was stripped of her official Royal Highness title, she lost the quality of highly trained, highly specialised security men like Ken. And as he explains, the sort of bodyguards employed by Dodi Fayed's father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, was simply not in the same game. The security guys, ex-military, with no personal protection experience at all. Their experience was confined to military operations. So they had no real understanding of who this woman was. No one from that team made any attempt to contact anyone at Scotland Yard for any help and assistance or advice how this might work. And because of who they were and their time employed by FAD, they were on the bottom rung of this sort of pyramid of power and really had no say in how this operation could have worked. Mohammed al fayed as we know, ran the security operation from his office 
And so everybody did what they, he said. The driver of the car that killed Princess Diana was a Parisian named Henri Paul. He had worked for the Fayed family for almost 11 years and had risen to the position of Deputy Head of Security at the Ritz in Paris. In testimony given to the British High Court into an inquiry into Diana's death, which we have recreated here word for word using actors, Kez Wingfield, one of Diana's security detail, recalls his and fellow bodyguard Trevor Rhys-Jones's first meeting with Henri Paul. Had you met Henri Paul before that occasion? No, that was the first day I ever met him. At that time, were you introduced to him, or did he introduce himself? Can you remember? I believe Trevor introduced us. He said, this is Henri. He's the 2IC at the Ritz, which means the second-in-command of the Ritz security. So far as Henri Paul was concerned, in the early part of the day, so between the airport and getting to the Ritz Hotel, was there anything remarkable about him at all? No. Kez Wingfield and Trevor Rhys-Jones also worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed and had spent the previous nine days with Diana and Dodie on board the yacht on the Riviera. With the paparazzi following their every move, even before they got to Paris, there was a sense that security around the princess was barely able to cope. One incident in Sardinia saw Dodie even get into a verbal confrontation with the photographers. And so Dodie and she go to a restaurant in Sardinia and he gets angry with two paparazzi outside. There's an altercation. This is where the interpersonal skills come into play. This is where speaking to people, understanding what people want, what their ideas, what their goals and objectives are in life, doesn't matter who it is. The paparazzi, like it or not, they were there doing a job quite legally. They don't kill people. So somebody needs to speak to Dodie and say, look, hang on, we'll deal with this. You just concentrate on your meal, have a good time. Let us deal with that. Diana knew this. She knew how this worked. Diana knew that. We would always say, look, look, hang on, you know, they only shoot photographs. They don't shoot bullets. I, in the end, had a very good relationship with the media. For Dodie to get so excited and have this argument in a back street in Sardinia and then effectively lose it, rush back to the yacht and then head back to Paris in a fit of pique. This is where the bodyguard comes into play, to have a dialogue with him and her and say, how are we best going to sort this out? The situation was not helped by Dodie's apparent lack of trust in the judgment of his own bodyguards, as this extraordinary testimony from Kez Wingfield demonstrates. In the course of the trip itself, did either of you make representations to try to get more help? Yes, sir. Uh, on a number of occasions, we called for, not backup, as was reported before, we called for extra members to report onto the boat. We had a number of conversations with our ops room in London. I recall one where I was speaking to Paul Handley Greaves, who was my boss at the time, and I said, look, Paul, I think this was about the fifth day into the trip when it was clear that the trip was going to be longer than two or three days. I suggested that we, you know, we were getting tired and, and we needed more people on the tasking. And he said, the boss wants it to be low-key, so we don't want people all over the boat. But they had no dialogue. There was no dialogue. They were there just living the part. Even Rhys Jones in his book, when they knew they were going to have Diana on board as a guest, said to his mate, this would be a great job to be on. It was a fun job. It was a jolly for them. 
and they not believing for one moment that anything would go wrong. Well, why should it go wrong? Trouble is though, in these circumstances, when something does go wrong, it tends to go wrong big time. The slapdash security operation was to reach rock bottom once Diana and Dodie got to Paris. They didn't even actually speak to the British Embassy in Paris, letting them know that the Princess of Wales is in Paris. That was the first thing you do that I did. I went to Paris on a number of occasions. Anywhere in the world, you let the embassy know. That's a form of contact, a form of advice, form of help. Speak to the police. You need the police on your side that every major city in the world where there are VIPs, particularly royalty, there is a liaison officer for you to hang on to. All they need to do is contact the gendarmerie. A guy would have been sent down to be your liaison, to advise you how you're gonna play this one out. Speak to somebody about organizing the press. Let's get some barriers out from there. Speak to them, say, listen, we'll get you a picture. Kez and Trevor Rhys-Jones didn't even know how long the princess and Dodie were to stay in Paris. What role did you and Trevor have on the morning of Saturday the 30th of August in making arrangements for the physical security of your principals once you arrived in Paris? We just had to make sure that any moves that the couple did, we were with them. And from what I recall, we didn't think that they were going to have any particular time in Paris. We assumed that it was going to be moving straight on to London, perhaps just in Paris for the afternoon and then move to London. That's the sort of indication that came from the crew. However, Dodie wouldn't tell us what his intentions were. You have spoken about rumours going around the boat. That was with the crew of the boat, was it? That's correct. You weren't told for how long Dodie and Diana intended to be in Paris. The crew basically said it's going to be the afternoon and we thought, well, we are going to do the afternoon and then we're going to fly on to the UK. The party arrived in Paris around 3.30pm in the afternoon where they were introduced to Henri Paul for the first time. The rich deputy head of security was supposed to have had the night off, but due to the extraordinary circumstances of Diana's visit, the plan changed. At around 7pm, he left the hotel, but at 10pm, he returned, supposedly on the instructions of Dodie. As part of our investigations in Paris, we've retraced Henri Paul's steps between first clocking off for the evening and the getting behind the wheel of the Mercedes that carried Diana to her death. One would think it would be a sobering tale, but... Now, Ben Murrell, one of the security guys, is on record as saying, and Rhys Jones writes about it in his book, I noticed Henri had turned up, and he looked as though he'd had a good lunch. Now, that doesn't mean to say he'd been stuffing himself with oysters somewhere nearby. It means that he'd been having a drink, and he was. He was a drinker. He was an alcoholic. There's a famous bar called Harry's Bar, and I spoke to staff there. There's another bar some distance from there as well, which is a gay bar, and he used to drink there as well. They all said that he'd popped in during the afternoon. He'd knocked off during the 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock period, and they recall him having a pastis and a different drink at these different hotels. And then he went home, and it was around about 7 p.m. he was at home, and then he was recalled to the Ritz. So he actually knocked off, was drinking, 
and then was recalled to help with the security issues to do with Lady Diana. No one knows how much he was drinking, but I definitely spoke to two bar owners and they recalled him drinking pastis and other drinks. Again in his book, Rhys Jones says that he saw on report earlier that day drinking what he thought was two or three pineapple juices. Now, it's an irony, is it not, that a pastis alongside a pineapple juice would be very difficult to tell the difference. And we do know that Henri Paul was not a pineapple juice drinker. He was a pastis drinker. After Henri Paul returned to the hotel, he waited in the Hemingway bar for further instructions from his boss, Dodie. Receipts from the bar that night showed he paid for two glasses of Ricard, a brand of pastis, a hard liquor. Here is further High Court testimony from fellow security officer Kez Wingfield. So far as Mr Paul is concerned, did he have something to drink and you remember that? That's correct. But you thought it was a soft drink? Yes. In fact, I asked him what he was drinking and he said ananas, which is French for pineapple. There has been a lot of speculation about this and I would like to say that people have said, oh, you should have known. But there was nothing in Henri Paul's demeanour that he had been drinking. And also my focus of attention wasn't Henri Paul. The focus of attention was to get a sandwich down my neck as quickly as I could and then get back on the job. Henri Paul was sat there to my left, but I was facing to my right, looking for an indication from the Paris Ritz security staff that there was maybe a change and the couple were moving. So just staying for a moment with how Henri Paul seemed and what he was drinking... The first thing is that you believed he was drinking soft drinks. That's correct. There was another security guard there called Winfield. He recalled that night as well that in the Hemingway bar, which we just had a look at inside this beautiful hotel, that Henri Paul was drinking a certain concoction that had a pineapple colour. That's the classic colour of a pastis with water, yes? Yes, the investigative body in England suggested that this was pastis, which is a high alcohol drink similar to the alcohol volume of scotch, whiskey, and it has this strange pineapple colour. As late as moments before they fled this hotel, he was drinking this pungent drink. Now, this is the thing pastis is an aniseed. Aniseed is one of the strongest flavours that you could emit from breathing. So, how couldn't these people have smelled that? Aniseed reeks off you if you've been drinking a number of them. Pastis is a bit like Scotch whiskey, about the same percentage. It's a hard man's drink. You've got to know what you're doing when you're drinking this stuff. You almost always drink it with a bit of ice or a little bit of water. And I spoke to many barmen that serve in this drink. Fascinating thing is, as Dylan's doing, you put water and ice into this, what looks like Scotch whiskey, it all of a sudden becomes... Something looks like pineapple juice. So if somebody's looking at you across the bar, you're just probably having a healthy juice to drink of pineapple juice. It's a bomb. It's about 45% fruit. It's way too strong. It should have half of what you have in there. But, but it, it's, it's, you can it's smell nice. it immediately. Yeah. But the yeah, effect's going to be the same. You the volume, you the water. It smells and tastes when like the liqueur. Like... How many of these drinks had Henri Paul had on the night in question? Well, when I went to Harry's bar, and also to this gay bar some distance away, they were saying he was sitting at the bar, each of them having pasties. One, two, I don't know any more than that. Then he got recalled to duty, and then he was in the Hemingway bar having pineapple juice again. And if you drink this, 
there's a powerful taste of aniseed, oh. and that goes off your breath. It's so powerful, you can't help it. You know that this person's been drinking. Dodie, Diana, and Trevor Reese Jones must have been able to smell the amount of food on Henri Paul. I agree. They must have known about it. They must have been conscious of him drinking because let's not forget one thing. As they left this hotel, they left by a little cubicle elevator. Four of them got in there squashed and they had to go down all those flights to get to the back laneway to get in the car to go. This is the last photo ever of them is in that little squashed elevator, right? They must have been close to each other for yeah, a few minutes. So you would be confronted directly with the smell yeah. from the mouth, from the lips of Henri Paul. And if I'm in charge of his security, I'm saying at that point, at that exact point, if I hadn't said it already, time out, enough. Someone stinks of grog. My lady I've been looking after isn't going with you. My investigations also revealed that Henri Paul left the Hemingway bar on several occasions to chat to the waiting crowd of paparazzi outside the hotel. Here's one of the photographers who was there that night, Pierre. Henri Paul came out of the hotel and he came up to us and started to casually talk to us and he started to give away information to us, which was quite odd. While he was back inside, my friend was telling me he's probably lying to us because he's the head of the security because my friend knew who he was and his job is not to speak to us and not deliver very sensitive information. But the thing is, I had never seen him before. I knew who he was and as soon as he started to talk to us and giving away informations, I instantly found it very suspicious because that guy's job is not to get information to us as a head of a security, especially on a very sensitive story and people. Why would he talk to the press? As I remember, he was saying, oh yes, don't worry, you'll get your shot. I'm not going to sneak away through the back door, everything is going to be fine, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was too good to be true. He was really showing off. He was a me, 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 I, I, I. He was clearly putting himself forward. He was intoxicated by it. Yeah, you could say that, although he was not intoxicated by the alcohol, I couldn't smell anything in his breath, although he was quite close to us. Was he unsteady on his feet? No, he was completely normal. And you say that you didn't notice anything odd uh, about him? Absolutely nothing. Honest, he was normal, steady on his feet. No, he didn't smell of alcohol at all. If and, you add up uh, all the little seconds that he came and went, came and went, came and went, to talk uh, to you, what's the total time? He talked to us for maybe a good 10 minutes, which was a long time, a long, long time. Yeah, it was odd. Was Henri Paul drunk? and disguising the pungent smell of Ricard Pastis on his breath with cigars. Was he revelling in the attention his status was giving him that night, playing up to the waiting photographers? Amazingly, Kez Wingfield, a highly trained security officer, did not detect the problem. During the time that Henri Paul was with you in the bar, and that was quite a period, did he show any signs of having taken an alcoholic drink to your eye at all? None at all, sir, no. Did he show signs during the course of the evening at all? None at all. 
Also, I would like to add that if a member of security team had been drinking and we saw them and he had been drinking, we would immediately get rid of them, stand them down from duty and deal with them in the morning. It's because of our principles, Mr. Fayed is a Muslim and a strict non-drinker. It would be unthinkable for any member of staff to be drinking. In fact, toxicology tests conducted on Henri Paul after his death showed he was dramatically over the legal limit to drive a car. I spoke to Professor Athel Johnston, forensic pathologist at the London School of Medicine. The French limit is 50 milligrams per deciliter and the concentrations recorded of alcohol in Henri Paul were uh, 174 milligrams per deciliter. So uh, over three times the French legal limit for, for driving. Two records should not have given them that concentration at that time because some had been metabolised and used up. So the time he was driving, I would have expected him to be below the legal limit. So 174 would indicate he's consumed a lot more liquor? Yes, it would suggest he had either drunk covertly while he was at the Ritz or had drunk before he came back to the Ritz that evening. Alcoholics can tolerate massive amounts of alcohol, so a value of, of 174. For an alcoholic, they could function quite normally. Shortly before midnight, Dodie hatched his plan to evade the waiting paparazzi by sneaking out the back door of the hotel with Diana into an unmarked waiting Mercedes. And the man he wanted to drive that Mercedes? Henri Paul. Rhys Jones should have insisted there and then and said to Dodie, my job is on the line, I know, but I'm not allowing this man to drive this car. You can sack me if you want, I'll be out of here. But I cannot, in all consciousness and by professional ability or integrity, allow this man to drive that car. But when you're charged in the business of protection, looking after somebody's life, it's your responsibility. And you have to take with that any fallout that might happen. And if as a result of him saying, you are not driving that car, to Henri Paul, that he lost his job, I would be happy with that. I'd walk away with that and say, at least I've done my job. He couldn't say that. And he allowed Henri Paul, not only to drive the car, but to mastermind a rear exit, which was a fatal security move. At the High Court inquiry into Diana's death, bodyguard Trevor Rees-Jones, the only occupant of the Mercedes to survive the crash, described his opposition to Dodie's plan. Due to the extent of his injuries, his words had to be spoken by his lawyer. I insisted as forcefully as I could that we should not leave from the rear. At the end of the day, his original idea was just him, the princess and the driver in one vehicle. If I had really started to kick up a fuss, he would have just told me to do as he said and to go to the front, so I had to make a decision on the ground at the time. I had to decide on the best compromise that I could reach with him without throwing him into making another rash decision to go alone. If I kept insisting that his idea was wrong, that we should be leaving from the front, he would have got more het up about me challenging him again and again. It was probably the most heated debate we had had on that holiday, as I had to try and emphasise as much as I could what Kez and I wanted to do. But ultimately, he was the boss, and he had the authority to dismiss us if he wanted to. Kez and I could not have carried him kicking and screaming to the front of the hotel, and thus a workable compromise had to be made. The alternative would have been Kez and me being sent to the front of the hotel and leaving in cars waiting outside, whilst the couple left alone without any security cover. However, for Diana's former bodyguard, Ken Wharf, it was not enough. 
and further basic mistakes kept stacking up. Why didn't Trevor Rhys-Jones insist Diana wear her seatbelt? From my experience, Diana on every single car journey never once had to be reminded about her seatbelt. We would look round to acknowledge that she put it on. So why didn't Rhys-Jones check that out and even say to her, please put your seatbelt on? Because she would have applied it. Because one thing's for certain, had she been wearing a seatbelt, she would most certainly have survived this car accident. She usually wore a safety belt in the back seat of limos. She certainly always wore one when she drove, but usually she wore one in the back, and she wasn't that night. Had she worn that belt, she would have survived. She might have been badly injured, but she would have survived. And the very fact that he, at some point in this Keystone Cops drive through Paris, decides to put his seatbelt on was the one thing that saved his life. Yes, I know he suffered horrendous injuries, but he realised there was a potential problem happening. So why didn't he tell her? And why didn't Mohammed Al-Fayed's security team notify the local police of their intentions? Now, if they'd spoken to the police and asked a police motorcycle outrider to sit in front of the car, if you like, in front of Henri Paul, if you like, at a speed of 30 miles an hour, the worst case scenario is that Henri Paul had probably knocked the motorcycle off of his bike but they wouldn't have hit the 13th pillar in the Alma Tunnel at just under 80 miles an hour and killed three people. I derive no satisfaction out of being critical of Rhys Jones and Wingfield. It just so happens they happen to be the two guys at the time, but their involvement and their experience really, in my view, was responsible for the errors and the accident that happened that night because it's so easily been avoided. This was a catalogue of errors, of Bad professional bodyguarding. A catalogue of errors, then with fatal consequences. But is that all it was? After the toxicology report was released showing Henri Paul was drunk when he crashed the car, Mohammed Al-Fayed immediately insisted the blood samples had been switched by the French Secret Services as part of a plot to murder his son and the Princess of Wales and pin it on his driver. Could the blood samples really have been switched? French investigators discovered that the pathologist who took the samples didn't bother to label them properly. They were left in the fridge overnight to be addressed by someone else the next day. Armed with this knowledge, new tests of Henri Paul's blood were conducted. The results were explosive. The second blood test proved that Henri Paul was not only 3.5 times over the alcohol limit, but he was also on prescription drugs. This was a fatal cocktail for driving a car at any speed. And so now, Al-Fayed changed his strategy. He turned against his trusted employee and accused him of being an informer for British and French intelligence. Mohammed Fayadossi would know his father and he had an enormous interest in diverting the general public from the truth about what happened. But the problem with it, from the Fayad point of view, was that he would do his idea, sanctioned by his father, Mohammed, who said, yes, you can leave your two chauffeurs outside the front and your diversion plan sounds a good one. You take on report out the back and that was the fatal moment in Diana's life. You have to blame Mohammed Al-Fayed too, because it was his hotel and his staff put her in a car with a chauffeur who was actually over the alcohol limit and who drove her to her death. The problem with Henri Paul was that he was not a driver. 
He had no formal qualifications to drive cars, limousines, but he was asked by the fires to drive on that day, and that was what the fire people were so keen to keep quiet, because putting an unlicensed driver in charge of the Princess of Wales' security was clearly a fatal error. The fires were determined to keep this as secret as possible, because Paul turned out drunk, Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. Guarding the westbound entrance tunnel were a couple of police cars with their emergency lights on, a couple of cops talking with each other. They were very nonchalant in their approach. As far as the police were concerned, there was a real lack of urgency for them to do anything. The police were very nonchalant about the entire scene. The police were doing absolutely nothing to prevent the photographers from taking these photos at a mile a minute. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and is production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved wherever you get podcasts.